We are not telling you to quit your job. Here at Off The Clock, the Healthcare Entrepreneurs Podcast, we are teaching you exactly how to gain your freedom as a healthcare professional in places that school never taught you. This is OTC University, and class is in session. Welcome to another edition of Off the Clock, the Healthcare Entrepreneurs Podcast. As always, I am the captivating, motivating, titillating, and money-making Mr. Carl Bourne Jr. And I'm joined by my main man, Mr. Paulo Ching. Paul, say what's up to the people. What up, what up, what's up to the people? Listen, I was going to play um, Word to DMX, rest in peace. I was going to play some DMX, but I know YouTube is just going to come with like some copyright stuff and Apple's going to hit on us. So just, just where the, okay, that's enough. Um, what up to the listeners? I am so happy to be here. I'm excited about this episode. Let's go. Yeah, this episode is going to be fire, man. We got a, we got a healthcare entrepreneur powerhouse in the building today. Like I'm ready for the knowledge that's about to be dropped. You guys know every week we like to bring you special guests that can improve your business, your brand, and really your life. This week is no exception. With that being said, I want to go ahead and introduce our guest for today. Um, our guest owns a home nursing nurse staffing agency and hosts over 300 employees in the company. He's been able to develop several software applications that allow home health care agencies to function with greater efficiency as well as hospitals to streamline their discharge planning and case management process. He's the creator of On-Time ITS, a mobile time and attendance application designed specifically for the home care industry. And the app eliminates the need for expensive telephone systems, paper timesheets, and combined with their web-based system, the home care agencies can use punch data to automatically run payroll and billing. He is also the co-founder of AidBook, an innovation leader in discharge planning. Without further ado, I want to go ahead and introduce our healthcare entrepreneur, uh, a living legend himself, also was featured in Earn Your Leisure. You guys know, you guys know EYL. Shout out to EYL. But without further ado, in the building today, we got Mr. Carl Pierre in the house. Carl, talk to us, man. How you feeling? Thank you so much for joining us. I'm feeling good, man. Thanks for the uh, colorful introduction. <laughs> it's all, it sounds it sounds when you're hearing it, it sounds a, a lot more complex than I think it is. Or maybe since I've been doing it for so long, it I don't know. It um, it ju- it just sounds interesting hearing it from someone else's perspective. I I kind of feel it's uh, pretty torturous work and tiring, <laughs> and that's how I typically feel. But um, Hearing the bio from another person's perspective make it, makes it sound pretty uh, fantastic and wonderful. So thank you for that. Absolutely, man. Thank you for donating your time. So speaking of your time, we like to be respectful of that because we know you're busy. The first thing we always like to do each episode is we like to start with the why, because we understand that so much stems from the why, so much has been built from that why. So just right out the gate, tell us, why did you even choose to pursue getting into the field of healthcare? Really, because it was pushed on me by my parents. Uh, Both my parents are immigrants from Haiti. And uh, as many immigrants know, or the children of immigrants know, that one of the pathways to success is through healthcare in the United States, right? There's a, you know, you talk to Indians, Asians, people from the Caribbean, people from Africa. The parents are typically pushing the path of medicine, law, or accounting, and sometimes engineering, and those are your pathways to success in the United States. And, and that's the path that they want you to be on to achieve success when you're here. So my parents, when they immigrated to the United States, they both went into healthcare. Mother went into nursing, father went into respiratory therapy, and they wanted all their children to be doctors. Fortunately for me, my mother started her healthcare staffing firm back in 1996. And being the only child that was even interested in what she was doing and also had the competency of how to use a computer back then, or the only computer that was in the house, I naturally became her assistant in that business. So from very early on, it was managing spreadsheets, typing up documents for all of our forms, policies, and procedures, to managing QuickBooks, to handling and managing payroll, staffing. And then I went into college. 
And since I had this idea that I was going to work in healthcare regardless, um, I saw that my parents were always employed. We always had health coverage. I never seen any of them lose a job, be laid off, never went through hard times. I always looked at healthcare as being fairly secure. And my path originally started with going to pharmacy school. Um, but I was going to St. John's University. I didn't get a scholarship. So we're paying private tuition. And I didn't feel it was fair to my parents uh, to kind of take on that financial burden. So then I transferred to a state college and was studying pharmacology and eventually went into radiological studies and graduated, I guess, with a degree in health technology and management with a concentration in radiological studies. So I was doing x-ray, CT, MRI coming out of college. But while I was in college, I also decided to expand my mother's business into the Nassau and Suffolk County uh, counties, which are east of New York City. She was working out of New York City. I saw that there was a, a clear expansion point, plenty of nursing facilities that were in the area. So I took that on. And that's kind of my, my journey into, into healthcare. Um, didn't want to become a physician. Fortunately, I have an older brother who uh, took that path. <laughs> so he, he satisfied, you know, my son's a doctor sort of uh, thing. Uh, and I went the more of the entrepreneurial route. And I chose the path that I chose uh, radiology or radiological studies, because I wanted to be able to work the odd hours. I wanted a job that was a 24 seven sort of shift, whether it was going to be nursing, respiratory therapy, one of the positions that operated nights and weekends, because I wanted to keep my nine to five, really, really my entire day, free for business activities, particularly the nine to five range so that I could function. So I was working overnights and like suicide weekends where I was going in for two 16 hour shifts, Saturday and Sundays at another hospital. So I was able to really earn all of my income overnight and on the weekends so that everything that's being generated out of the business could be reinvested into other business activities or into other asset classes. Hey, listen, um, I don't know where I want to start really um, from the point of actually, I, I know where I'm going to start. Let's start here because you, you mentioned it. And then I think a listener is just going to be like, oh, bet you know, it could just happen. Um, the thing I want to talk about really is you talked about when you expanded your mom's business. Right. Um, some things I want to figure out, like what were the key markers for you to figure out like, hey, there's space for expansion Two. I can actually do it. And then three, what was your thought process or your strategy about going about it? Because I think people like might've heard that and said, okay, at some point we should be able to expand. But that also that kind of feeds into that. What I hate where everybody thinks like you can just scale from the start, right? Um, so how, what were those things for you to be able to recognize? And then how did you go about expanding it? Well, the first thing was that I would see the nursing facilities on my way to school, right? So I, I went to Stony Brook University. So that it's like maybe 60 miles outside of New York City. And I lived on campus, but I would commute every now and then back to the city or back home to visit my parents and friends, that sort of thing. Uh, so I would see nursing facilities on the way. And I'm like, wow, there's quite a few that are within sight's eye from the train there's gotta be a pretty high concentration of these sort of buildings. And also it's a little more spread out. So you're able to kind of build some facilities out on the island more so than you are in, in New York City. And sometimes I would see them building either new assisted living facilities or new skilled nursing facilities. And then I kind of brought that to my mom's attention. And she was, I was like, well, you know, why don't you service Long Island? Why are you just kind of sticking to the New York City area? And then she turned around and was like, well, why don't you? I was like, well, you know what? You're right. <laughs> I might as well. I know the business cold. Um, I could probably start hiring some of my classmates or, or people who, who just graduated from the university and get them into positions that I could staff. So that's really where I guess the, the inspiration to, to, to kind of do it came from was kind of my mom pushing back and saying, well, she's really not interested herself in expanding the business. But if I see the opportunity and why aren't I taking it? And I was just like, all right, I'll, I'll run with that. Um, so no, no real heavy 
market research, what I did was essentially, I went to the Department of Health website and we mostly staffed uh, skilled nursing facilities at the time. So I was like, well, I, I know who to contact within these facilities. I know who the decision makers are. Um, let me just get every single skilled nursing facility in the counties that I want to service. And I'm going to just, you know, re-manufacture her contract so that the rates are reflective of what they're paying in, in out in the island. So I did a little research to see what other agencies were paying, what nurses expected to get paid, and just adjusted our rate sheet from there. And then before hiring any nurses, I started to solicit my own contracts there. Um, which is just cold calling. You know, you really pick up the phone, call those decision makers. It's going to be the administrator, staff and coordinator, director of nursing. Typically, those three roles are playing a direct role in how the facility is staffed. And if they're short and in need of staff and you're calling them to say, hey, I may have a solution for you, and they already are using other agencies, typically that's the best place to start because they already are familiar with the mechanics or comfortable having outside uh, professionals working in their facility. Um, once I knew that, then it became an opportunity to start negotiating rates and seeing whether or not they wanted to allow my agency into their facility. Once we agreed on those terms, um, then I started to kind of hire staff. And it was different then because um, the internet was still kind of in its infancy stage. You were using like Monster and Monster was pretty expensive at the time. And I don't even know if Monster still exists or people still use that. Um, but yeah, monster, monster is not, um, not out there anymore. But that was that was the the, uh, the platform of choice back then. And then you had to directly market to people. So I would stand outside of nursing facilities at shift change. So from like 230 to 330, try to flyer the nurses who are coming out flyer their cars, um, let them know that I was hiring or that I worked for the company, right? Because the, you know, to see a 19, 20 year old kid um, talking about he's the, the owner of the company is a little kind of um, disheartening for some nurses. So I would just say, hey, I, I just work for the company and this is what we're doing. This is, we're looking to expand here. We have these facility contracts and just kind of started that way. But for me, it was a lot different, right? I, I grew up in the business starting at the age of 14. So I was already five, six years in understanding every single aspect of the business because I was there for it. So I learned kind of organically what is right, what is wrong, what is required of an initial hire, what the language is so that, you know, when I'm talking to, to the decision makers at those facilities that I'm not just shooting in the dark and, and sound clueless. So, um, I think that's kind of different than what most people's experiences will be. And what's actually cool that we're, we're doing this now and talking about this now is that this spring, I'm launching another program on how to start a healthcare staffing firm where I'm now condensing that experience down um, into about like a 10 hour workshop or so with a mentoring option where I kind of walk you through the process of how to start one of these firms uh, the documentation is going to be required, how to pitch and, and obtain new clients and customers, how to source employees at this time. Uh, if you're just starting from scratch, it's going to be a lot of moving parts and a lot to learn. So condensing it down into a few hours and giving step-by-step -step and even some hand-holding if someone were to choose that option um, is really uh, the way to go, in my opinion. Otherwise, you're going to be you know, learning the hard way which takes time first off let me just let me just take a, a second uh, <laughs> to give you your flowers right because one of the things that you said and it stuck out to me the most is because with the entrepreneurial side of our podcast you know we bring all these amazing guests on all these successful people such as yourselves and it's easy for people to look and be like, yo, they have this, they have that. They've been able to build this for themselves. And they forget that you still had to grind, right? You talked about the fact that you would stand outside during shift change, like, hey, you know, I work for the company and, you know, we're hiring. 
You know what I'm saying? And, and that's something that I think a lot of people really wouldn't be willing to do. You know, I think more people would shy away from that. But it's just a testament to the fact that when you're actually like serious about growing something and building it, you got to be able to exhaust all your options. So that was that was amazing to hear. Um, a question that I want to ask you now is just looking at at that model. Right. And just looking at what you've been able to do with that. What would you say? One, I kind of want to know, like, from a standpoint of, for instance, myself and Paul, we're in physical therapy. So what does it look like to be able to transfer that model into an industry such as physical therapy or like a separate industry? Is that something that's feasible? And then what would you say are like some misconceptions you find most people have when it comes to being able to start their own agency? Well, I think you can staff just about anyone, right? What you have to identify is, is there sufficient supply and demand for, for the type of employee or the profession that you're staffing, right? Whether it's security guards, home health aides, nurse aides, RNs, LPNs, PTs. Um, if I were talking directly to a physical therapist, or which I'm talking to them now, um, I would say the, the most important thing is first understand the mechanics of healthcare staffing. Typically, you're getting a contract with a business that needs your services, right? And, and you're negotiating a rate with that business, which is fantastic because you, you want businesses as your customers. You, you really don't want, I prefer not to sell direct to consumer because the, the business to business relationship or they're kind of codependent, right? A business is going to continue to purchase product and service from you if they need that to do their business, right? So it's 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 not going to stop unless you somehow service things inappropriately or something along those lines, right? Um, or they go out of business. But you that that business being your customer is repeat business and kind of predictable and potentially scalable, right, within the organization. So if you're a physical therapist, the first thing that you want to do is know those mechanics, right? Say, okay, I, I, I know that I'm going to be contracting with a business. I want to make sure that I'm pricing myself appropriately, right, so that it's worth it for the business to hire me. And I want to make sure that I have enough supply to at least satisfy some of their demand, right? So you're negotiating on one end with skilled nursing facilities, home health care agencies, uh, maybe physical therapy practices, skilled nursing facilities, hospitals, uh, rehabilitation centers, the, those sort of client schools, potentially for like their athletic programs. Um, so you're, you're going to, to kind of narrow down who is your customer, right? Um, narrow down the rates, narrow down what your market could potentially uh, tolerate, right? On the other side, you're going to want to make sure that you're hiring the necessary staff to fill, you know, the gaps that you're, you're claiming that you can fill. Um, and, it, and it's kind of like that, regardless what profession you're staffing, it's, it, the same rules apply. Now, you're going to have a lot of other moving parts like your insurance, workers' comp, kind of setting up your payroll, how are you going to manage the schedules of these people when they start working, managing their personnel records. <laughs> so you, you're going to need to know those things. And that's why I say it's better to start off with education because it's it's more checklist type of stuff that if you satisfy what's on the checklist, you're going to be okay to start focusing on the business. And then once you have those things satisfied, like the basic infrastructure for for your staffing firm, then it's just a matter of starting to pick up the phone and connect with people, right? You're gonna have to be willing to go out there and talk to potential customers. And your customers aren't, aren't only just the businesses, but it's also the people that you plan on hiring. So you constantly are out there saying, hey, here I am, I provide the service, do you wanna work with me? Over and over and over again. Um, and to whatever scale you can afford, whether it's with more marketing staff, more sales reps, 
more Google ads. I know you guys do your, your SEO and, and, and funnel building. So you understand that mindset. It's like, if I cast a wide enough net, you know, you start to filter down who's going to be your customer. It's the same exact sort of approach when, when you're trying to pick up either new clients as a, as a business that's hiring your services or new clients when you're looking at the employees, because ultimately they're, they're your customers too. You need to treat them right or else you're going to lose them and you're going to lose business. I want to ask you, um, just because we're on the topic, and this might seem a little deeper, but it could be. Uh, what what then is it, you know, if it's one thing or how many things it is, but what's one thing at a minimum then that you'd like to see change in healthcare or you yourself want to change in healthcare? Well, I th- the one thing that I would like to change in healthcare is that I believe that all medical records should be hosted in one centralized place in one standard format. I think that's ultimately the killer of healthcare. There's not a single system that is collecting all of the information in the same way. All the, you know, a lot of hospitals are using Epic, but all all the providers are using, you know, all kinds of software, which is cool, but there isn't a common language between their systems. And there isn't a common place for you to pull information. So if I could design anything and change anything in healthcare, it would be to mandate a fixed structure of how medical records are stored and how all the software needs to feed this centralized thing. Because when one patient goes from a one provider to the next, there shouldn't be this lag time or this necessity to, to fax you know, medical records back and forth. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of resources. It, it causes complete waste from a payer perspective. So why aren't they doing anything to at least mandate that the software providers use a common framework, at least, you know, you know uh, co- some sort of common API structure that they could exchange to and host in one centralized place so that when, you're, when it's time for you to pull data on a particular client, it's there. Um, rather than waiting hours to days to get a signature, to get a document. It's, that's what I would definitely change about, about healthcare. And I, I think, you know, if, if the government were to actually get involved and regulate that, it would be saving itself a, a tremendous amount of money. And then the software creators will also, you know, know exactly how to build their, their databases, how to build their APIs for, for communication, it would, it would make things so much more streamlined if they did that. That's real. Um, especially cause I remember, man, like I remember back when I graduated high school, right. Um, when I graduated, my very first job out of high school was converting physical medical records into digital. But then when I went to work at a different hospital, totally different thing. Right. And that's one of the things that used to confuse me. Like how on earth do you have to like the, the there's no seamlessness between two so if like you have a doctor because i'm in florida now right but if my doctor in michigan needed to send my records down there i better just drink some tea i'm better off like doing that versus waiting for things to have people to talk um so i love 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 that answer uh what would you say is maybe like the biggest misconception about the home health staffing industry well home health care and staffing are different so home healthcare is kind of broken up into really three parts, right? Of, of community-based home care. One part is skilled home healthcare, which is going to focus on like subacute sort sort of subacute and high tech applications or highly skilled professionals. So it's going to be your nurses, your infusion therapy, um, uh, wound care. Uh, education, that sort of thing. Then you're moving on into physical therapy and, and the therapies, physical therapy, occupational therapy, uh, speech therapy. And, you know, that's going to make up your, your, the skilled world, right? And that's episodic meant to address like acute findings, right? Or things that can be managed better at home 
than you know in a costly facility, right? That's kind of the mindset. Bring the services home so that they're costing less in an environment that's comfortable for the client as long as you're getting them to recovery quicker, right? And it's one-to-one. Um, then you have kind of like the non-skilled home health care, which is the personal care, companions, that sort of thing, where you're assisting with activities of daily living. Then you have the hospice piece, which is palliative end-of-life care. Um, and that's also episodic, right? It, you know, that is not supposed to be a continuous long-term sort of thing like personal care is, for instance. Um, so that is home health care. Home health care is highly regulated, typically licensed and managed by your state's Department of Health, as well as an accrediting, accreditation body like JCO, CHAP, et cetera. Um, so that's home health care. Healthcare staffing is pretty much an independent business that is middlemanning the employment shortages of an employer. And it is loosely regulated and really a lot cheaper and easier to run, less liability, less risk. It's completely a different business and easier. I'm in both lines and I think that's what confuses people because I'm in home healthcare and in healthcare staffing. So people, even when you're describing it, you're kind of mixing it as a home healthcare staffing company or something like that. And I was just like, well, yep, this is the same <laughs> that I'm used to, but it, they're, they're completely two different lines of business and two different uh, ideas. However, kind of managing the workforce is the same because you're gonna need a certain amount of people satisfying your caseload right, of patients, where you're still managing people's schedules, you're still managing the professionals, um, no different than if you were staffing those professionals in a facility, right? So the thing that's the same is the placement of personnel and the hiring of personnel. But who you're serving ultimately is different because in home healthcare, you're actually servicing the patient. And in healthcare staffing or any staffing company, you're servicing the employer. So, so that's the difference. Now, the thing that I, I would say is the greatest misconception is that home healthcare is easy and lucrative. It can be lucrative if you are appropriately scaled and depending on what you think is, is lucrative, but it's a lot harder than healthcare staffing. And both can be as lucrative, right? Because you're in, especially in personal care, your margins are fairly low, especially if you have government paying contracts, you might be looking at 10 to 15% margins. Meanwhile, on healthcare staffing, you might be looking at 40, 50% margins over, you know, on what you're earning, right? So I think you could be making more with less. And also you have less oversight on you have less oversight of those professionals, right? And less oversight by the state. So if when people say, hey, I'm thinking about getting into a line of business that is in healthcare, um, I usually route them to healthcare staffing just because it's less paperwork, less oversight, less fees that you have to pay. It's just less. And you can make just as much money and sometimes more than in home health. However, home health is highly scalable because the entire country is your potential patient, right? Well, if you're servicing you know, every state, every county, then your customers are 330 million people. Um, so you could carve out, you know, like one of the largest home health care companies that's publicly traded has 45,000 lives that they're treating right, out of 330 million Americans. And they have over a billion dollar market cap or market valuation. So um, when you're looking at that, you know, it's like 45,000 lives isn't a lot. Um, you know, that's a thousand lives per state and, and you're there. And a thousand lives under management is not a lot either. So um, that, that was, that's what I would say is the, the key difference and probably the lead misconception is that home healthcare is easy to start and is going to make you a ton of money. It's not easy to start. And a lot of people I've seen start never really even get patient number one. 
So, you know, it, it's not, it's not that simple. So now the question I have to ask, right. Um, and for the listeners, like just to think about that number, he just said that company's like basically servicing like 0.0015% of the population. So there's space, <laughs> there's space in the market. Like there's hella space in the market. I, I have mm-hmm. to ask this, right? Leadership, just, just to give you perspective, short. Yeah. Leadership in home health only represents 2% of the entire industry. So it's highly fragmented, a lot of opportunity for consolidation. And that's kind of where we're going now. So um, I, I'm with you on that. that that's accurate. Um, the question I got for you just kind of deals with, because I know I almost feel like some people might be listening to this and thinking, um, okay, but then do I need to think about joining both? Or if like 10 people come to you right now, right? Mm-hmm. And you sent all 10 to do the staffing, but then they all come back to you and say, okay, but then how should I just do all my things as staffing? Or would you kind of like advise them to like, okay, then try to balance out and get some home health companies into the game or just say, bump it, just stick to staffing. It's easier there. I would tell them if they're looking, it's really up to what they want to do, right? Like home health care is a lot different than staffing. So if you care about providing direct care to clients, ultimately be responsible for patients and, and having that responsibility and wanting to ensure that people are receiving the proper care and you want to have somewhat of a direct impact on what's happening to people's lives, then you should go into home health care. If you're not interested in that and you're just interested in making money, then you probably should just deal on the staffing side, right? Because at the end of the day, the clients within your home health care agency, their lives are in your hands. So it's not something like, oh, I'm going to just do this and, and grab some money out of here. Um, you need to be honest with yourself and say, hey, what am I getting into this for? Am I getting into this to make money? If the answer is I'm only getting into this to make money, then you probably shouldn't be starting a home health care agency um, because you're going to be dealing with real people in bad shape and um, that's not easy to deal with. So now on the, on the other side of that, now after having heard you talk about the differences between the two of them, because we also like to you know, give the listeners an opportunity to see and envision what it looks like to, to start or fund you know, whatever business venture. And you're already making the face. So I'm like, this is this is about to be some something. But just tell us, like, uh, how much capital is needed to be able to start uh, the staffing agency versus the, the, the home health care agency? OK, to start the staffing agency, I would say to actually just start and be able to say, hey, I'm in business. I would say costs about two thousand dollars. That's going to be just your filing fees and maybe your initial deposits for your workers' compensation insurance and you know the, the necessary things that you're gonna need to be a company to do business as a staffing firm, two grand. But you're still gonna need money to support payroll, right? So let's just say it's just you and it's, I'm gonna start my corporation, I'm gonna get insured so I'm able to run payroll. I get all my ducks in a row. You could probably do that for $2,000. But you're gonna come into a time where you're floating payroll. Because you're going to have a contract with a payer that says, I'm going to bill you monthly and you're going to reimburse me within maybe 15 days, maybe 30 days. So you need to float that, that employee's salary up until you get reimbursed and then you're going to take your profit payment, right? So you're either going to need a, some sort of credit facility like a line of credit or a factor that's going to give you advances on, on your receivables. Um, but to just get started, 2000 I would say is this bare minimum. Um, more realistic, I would probably say maybe about $50,000. That way you might be able to carry a few nurses salaries for a month or two, and then kind of it'd be worth it to you to carry that for that time if you're kind of focused on it full-time or part-time that you're that there's enough to make a spread on it, right? So if you had 50,000 and your spread is 30% and that 50,000 carries you two months, then you're going to make $15,000 on the 
churn of that 50,000, right? 15,000 on the churn of the 50,000. Um, home healthcare, I would say, depending on the state that you're in and depending on the type of shop that you're going to start, easily you're looking at a starting point of $100,000 and upward. Um, and that can, number can go down depending on your market, depending on what sort of home health care agency you're going to start. So here in Florida, I started a Medicare skilled home health care agency. And the, just the, the bare cost is $100,000 because you need to have around $95,000 or $96,000 for uh, your Medicare hold, meaning you, you, re- you literally need to set aside $100,000 in the bank so that Medicare can even give you the rights to service clients, right? You need to have a certain level of liquidity so that you're able to pay your staff when you start taking patients, right? Because there's gonna be a lag between when Medicare reimbursed you and you provided services. So they wanna make sure that you're capitalized for that. And then you have your state licensing fees. And then if you're not a nurse and you're not, you know, your initial employee, like you're, you're not gonna be able to fill the seat of the initial employees, which are your nurse and your administrator. Let's just say you're a husband and wife team. One's a nurse, one's the administrator, one's the business mind, one is the healthcare side of things. You're gonna to have to pay those people to be on your books for as long as it takes to get your license cleared. So there's gonna be some costs there. And then you still have to do your policy procedures. You might have to buy that from somebody. So I could even say it's, I know for what my costs have been, which have exceeded $200,000, um, but if you're, if you're starting from scratch, doing what we're doing here in Florida, I would say at minimum, you're gonna need 100,000 to just even start. Um, that's not including your marketing budget, that's not including overhead for your office space that you need to maintain while you're getting licensed. So when people come to me and say, hey, I, you know, I, I wanna get into uh, home healthcare, I, I always point to them at staffing because I know what it's like to go through it. And I know that most people don't have the fortitude to get there. And even if they did, and they did so undercapitalized, they're going to run into the brick wall. And most of them aren't gonna make it happen because they just don't have the capital to float it. They don't have the business experience. They don't have the acumen. They don't have any of those things. They, they may really care for patients, but that's not what's gonna bring business through your door. So, you know, that that's the long answer to a fairly simple question. So 2000 for staffing and probably uh, upwards of 100,000 for, for a, medic, a medical home healthcare agency. Yeah, that is, oh my gosh. I get it. I get it now. Um, and, you know, listeners, pretty sure you, you understand too, just like the vast difference. Um, you know, I want to want to ask you a quick question before we switch gears a little bit. And this just comes down to kind of looking back over, over everything you've done, right? All the businesses, um, everything you've touched. What would you, is there, is there like a single greatest achievement, accomplishment where you could look back and be like, yeah, that was the greatest thing or like the dopest thing I ever did? In healthcare? Any of the businesses so far? The dopest thing I ever did in business. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not that impressed by what I've done. Um, because I, I, I just see that there's so much more that I can do and that I will do that the level that I'm at now, it seems like low level. So if I were going to look at historically what I've done in business, what I'm most proud of is probably building out our software platform because that came out of really just being dissatisfied with what was being offered by my now, my competitors. Um, They were unwilling to kind of make custom solutions for us. And I was just like, you guys are thinking in such a antiquated way that I might as well, rather than pay your software fees, kind of put my team together and build 
a home healthcare software from the perspective of the owner operator and what really matters to us rather than, you know, a, a third party that's kind of creating what they think we need. Um, so I'm probably most proud of about that because I was taking that idea and making it real and now having other companies using that software to run their business would probably be what I'm most proud of in, in healthcare uh, to date. And I think in life, I'm actually most proud of learning how to fly and owning my own aircraft and really having that responsibility. I think that's far more interesting than what I'm doing in, in home healthcare. I'll tell you that much. So Carl, we have a, a segment of the show um, that we do and it's called our black health segment. And essentially what we do during that segment is we just kind of, we, we give some facts, you know, uh, about a specific disease or musculoskeletal impairment, or, you know, just a health fact that kind of, you know, gives some notice to the, the disparities that happen in the, in the black community, as far as healthcare goes. So I'm going to get into that segment real quick. And uh, for today's black health segment, guys, uh, I want to go ahead and talk about sarcoidosis, which is an inflammatory disease that affects multiple organs in the body, but mostly the lungs and the lymph glands. In people with this disease, there's abnormal masses or nodules consisting of inflamed tissues that form in certain organs of the body. Now, deaths from lung scarring and sarcoidosis are 16 times more common among um, African-Americans, Blacks, African, Afro-Caribbeans, Afro-Latina than among whites. And this disease also killed former NFL star Reggie White at the age of 43. So uh, just being mindful, uh, a number of studies have implicated that employment in metal industries uh, lead to a higher cause of this because of the chemicals and contaminants that you're exposing your lungs to. So be mindful of that. Also be mindful of any uh, uh, pesticides because those can also contribute to that, any mold and things like that. So just uh, make sure that you're being aware of your surroundings, you know, in, in your home, you know, if there's any mold or any mildew, anything like that. And even like if in your industry, if you're in an industry where you have to be around metal and you have to be around these contaminants and chemicals, just make sure that you're taking the proper precautions to protect your lungs um, so that you can avoid being a victim of sarcoidosis. So that is our Black Health segment for today. Now, getting back into everything. I want to ask you now, because you're not only in the healthcare space, you also do some real estate. And uh, I think that that's a, a very, very, very powerful way of being able to build wealth, right? And being able to, to build longevity. And so Talk to us a little bit about, you know, the, the real estate portion of things and, and how did that start? Um, how much of a factor does that play into your healthcare businesses in terms of being able to combine the two? Or are they just two separate entities that you have going on? Uh, they're two separate entities, but one fuels the other. Um, I started investing in real estate in 2006. Uh, my buddies and I were going into to that health science program. And since it was a kind of like a, since it had like this post-bac clinical portion, we weren't guaranteed housing anymore since we graduated. Uh, but we were still very much students. Unfortunately, in those days, uh, anybody could get a mortgage. So one of the guys was like, hey, why don't we just buy a house? Um, so we bought our first property uh, right across the street from the university and decided that we would live there and rent out the additional rooms and make it work. Um, that was the beginning of building out uh, quite a large portfolio or small, like it's large by a lot of people's standards, but small when you look at the major players in the world. Um, so it, it's a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio uh, across three states now. Um, and really what happened is that 
I even had downturns in my healthcare business that were related to the credit crisis that occurred in the United States, you know, circa 2008, 9, 10, 11, <laughs> when credit pretty much dried up. So remember how I told you when you're running a staffing business or even a home healthcare agency, you have a lag between when you provide services and when you get reimbursed. So we were heavily dependent on a line of credit to float payroll, especially for some of the contracts that had less than favorable terms. But one by one, as the banks were going under or felt that they had too much risk by having you know, lines of credits out and that sort of thing, they just contracted. And that really hurt my business because I was able to staff less people, right? You, you, I had a finite amount of money to work with and all the longer term contracts that were playing, paying on slow terms. We had to stop doing that business and had to concentrate on what can we turn over the quickest, which actually ended up being home healthcare for us. So that's really what caused us to move more into home healthcare and out of staffing. We had this license that was just sitting there. Um, so when, when that occurred, I realized that, hey, even though the, the housing market collapsed, we're not doing well financially. I still got tenants paying me in my properties. And I was like, all right, well, at least I have that, you know, you know, on deck. And most of the properties that I had at that time were not underwater. They were bought well, priced well, and they were cash flowing and tenants were still paying, even though things went awry in the economy. So from that point on, I, I always made it a point to try to get more properties. So what ended up happening after that cycle, and I feel like, you know, we got a turn coming soon, but I've been saying that for like five years. Um, but when, when the economy is good, it's like the tide, right? It raises everything. So you benefit from just the expansion of the economy, even if you're not that good at business. The money's moving in, things appreciate in value, you're active, some of that money sticks, life is good. When the tide comes out, if you're a crappy business, you end up getting hurt, right? So from 2009 to present, I've been buying real estate. And that real estate has been appreciating and appreciating. And I'm you know, always buying distressed properties, always buying undervalued properties. So even when the tide pulls out, since I'm buying well, and I'm placing even in this COVID time, right? The majority of my tenants are current and paying me. A small percentage of them are behind, even smaller percentage of them are not paying at all, but the greater majority are. So not only has the value of my properties been going up over years, but I've been paying down those properties. So I have larger and larger equity, boosting my net worth, boosting my credit worthiness, and ultimately allowing me to have income outside of my primary business, which is home health. And what I do is whenever I can, I park profits from primary business into additional real estate assets. So, you know, one business develops and grows and allows me to afford to purchase other cash producing assets, which could also be businesses or stocks or, or anything else. It's just that I tend to park it in real estate because of that appreciation factor. And because I've seen it withstand, you know, a market cycle that was vicious. And, you know, that, that's kind of how the two, two are married. And I, and I encourage a lot of people to get into real estate because it's kind of one of the easiest businesses that you could have. And people don't look at it this way, but let's just say you bought a house, right? Real estate is, is quite easy to get funding for, right? There's not too many places or, or, or not too many banks that will lend you $300,000 to do anything. But if your credit is right, you got three and a half percent down, you could buy your first piece of real estate, right? With a job, Three and a half percent of you know, 300,000 is $10,000 plus closing costs, let's call it 25,000. You could buy your first asset that's 300 grand. There's not many, there's nothing that a bank will lend you on that, 
that easily. There's, I, I haven't seen anything. So unless they're lending you lending against your cash, right? Where it's an even wash for them. But real estate is probably the, the second easiest then. Um, when you're looking at it from that perspective, you could get yourself, you could get your hands on this asset, very little money down. And even if that $300,000 house was renting for $3,000 a month, it's only going to take you about an hour of time to collect that $300,000, that $300, right? For the month. Because what are you going to do? You're probably going to have the payment on auto pay. You're going to have your mortgage on auto pay. You're going to have all the services on auto pay that you need to be. It's almost no work, right? Other than the periodic call that you get from a tenant. And even that call is going to be a few minutes if there's a problem, right? So hot water is not working. Okay, let me call the plumber. So one call was five minutes. The next call was five minutes. You did 10 minutes of work for the month and you, and you still collected $3,000. Now you spent probably 2,500 of it but you still earned 3000 for less than an hour of time. You get 20, 30, 40, 50 houses, life starts to get really nice. So, you know, and I think that that's kind of how people should approach it and say, hey, look, let me, let me maybe save up enough, do enough so I could get one house a year and then two houses a year, then four houses a year, then 15 houses in a year. So, you know, that's kind of how I've, how I've managed it and I'll continue to manage it in that way because ultimately all the money that I park in real estate right now, since I'm not able to do 3.5% down, let's just say I do a traditional purchase. I'm still multiplying my money by a factor of four by the minute that I purchased, right? So if I, if I was buying a traditional home 20, 25% down, 30% down, whatever, and it was $100,000, I put down 30,000 but I have control of a $100,000 asset, right? So it, immediately I multiply my money. I get the tax advantages of owning that real estate, which is depreciation. I get the benefit of amortization, which is paying down that asset over time. I get some cash flow if I purchase properly. I have some equity if I purchased property properly. And at the end of it, I end up controlling this thing that's way more expensive than what I paid into it. So, you know, if people start to think that way and say, hey, man, you know, this extra money I have, I'm going to do this over here with it, you know, then that's what you should do. Because at some point, you end up making so much money in your life that, you know, a, a gallon of milk still costs you what it costs you. Right. So it's like you, the more you make, the more you start to like get discretionary money that you can now use to, to really start investing. A lot of people, as they make, they spend and they're like net flat. Right. So they can't really do much. But if you start to, if you really start to pile in and say, hey, I need to just get myself to a point where my lifestyle is maintained and I'm starting to make above that, that's where things get really interesting because that's when you start to really start picking up and snowballing your assets. Because even if you're making a million dollars a year and you're living on a 150,000 and that's a pretty decent life in the States, you live on 150,000, 150,000 spend and you're making a million, you have $850,000 that you could immediately multiply every year into damn near 5 million, right? By, by buying more real estate. So why wouldn't you Put yourself in that position. So I try to teach kind of that one-two of, of real estate and whatever your business choice is, really to show that that's kind of the step. You use your business to kind of get you self-employed, get you making above average money, and that discretionary money, pile that into real estate, keep building the pot, pile that into real estate, and then pile it into any other asset class that you're comfortable with, debt, stocks, anything that's going to spit off money for you because that extra money really just becomes more than what you need to put back into the machine. I want to, uh, man, I got so many questions um, specifically about the real estate stuff too, but maybe we might have to chat about that off camera. Um, let's talk about the, the Italy houses. 
right? Because I saw like, you know, this man is international. To the listeners, if you don't know, my man's not touching just American real estate. He's touching European real estate. Um, kind of talk to us a little bit about how that came up, how you discovered that, and then what the push was to actually get into it. And how's that going? Okay, so we'll talk about it. So the way that I got into the real estate thing in, in Italy was that um, my brother was, you know, you scroll through your phone, you scroll through whatever, you get your, in the New York Times, CNN, all those little news articles. One of them was a sensational article that said, um, they're selling properties in Italy for a dollar. <laughs> so he sends me, he sends me a link. He's like, yo, they're selling properties in Italy for a dollar. He knows that I invest in real estate, obviously. So he was like, yo, Carl, why don't we go out there? I've always had this idea of having a vineyard. He was like, so why don't you go out there and check out if it's possible? Cause they're selling properties for a dollar. And I don't know, are, are either of you ever from New York or traveled to New York or familiar with New York? Been there, yeah. yeah, I have family in New York. Okay. So, so are you familiar with Harlem? Okay. Yeah. Harlem used to be the pits, right? 1980s, destroyed by drugs. Economic conditions were bad. 90s, they started to sell properties in Harlem for a dollar. So these are brownstones that are selling for two and $3 million today. They were selling for a buck. But we were kids. My parents, actually, I grew up in Harlem until I was four. My parents just wanted to get the hell out of there, right? So they didn't take advantage of that. And we didn't take advantage of it because we were kids. But there's people who gobbled up a, quite a bit of real estate in Harlem on the cheap. A, do, a dollar to 5000 to 10000 15000 just buying shells at the time that are now worth far more than that, right? So he was like, we missed out on the Harlem rush. You know, that's always something in his mind. We missed out on Harlem. You might as well go over there and gobble up some properties. Okay, whatever. So I check it out and I thought, this is going to be at least a cool two-week vacation and I'm going to get a lot of cool content for my channel. And it actually turned out to be exactly that. It was cool two-week vacation. <laughs> awesome content for my channel that ended up, you know, I, I think half of my subscriber base is from my Italy footage because people have seen that article, the video went viral and people were like, I'm curious, I haven't seen anybody actually go through it. And I'm documenting that entire journey. So I ended up buying two properties, neither of them for a dollar. They really are selling properties for a dollar, but the investor in me saw that that wasn't the best deal. They have another market that's, uh, I guess the premium listings, they're regular homes that are in the same neighborhoods, but they're selling for like 5,000, 8,000, 10, 15, which is close enough to a dollar in my opinion. And I saw that if I were to buy those properties, that's what I was waiting for. So I didn't buy a property for one buck in Italy. And that was because the ones that were selling for $1 were too far gone. And the investor in me was looking at it from a different perspective. You see, they have what's called a premium market. And the premium market is selling properties for like 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 euros. And I looked at it and said, well, if I were to buy this property for one euro, it would cost me more than five or $10,000 to get it to the same standard of these five and $10,000 properties. These five and $10,000 properties are livable. They just need to be updated. So why am I gonna you know, pay a dollar for a crumbling building that's gonna cost me way more to fix, right? So that was the, the logic there. So I ended up buying two of them and I'm documenting that entire process and you know what it's like to renovate them. And the plan is really just to have a piece of Italy, right? It's beautiful, it's in, in the middle of Sicily in the mountains, um, small town in Italy by the name of Musomeli or in Sicily, which is part of Italy. It's about 40 minutes to the coast. Um, there's like sheep farmers in the area. It's really scenic. And I thought at minimum, this would be a nice vacation spot for my family. Uh, I could send friends there. I could Airbnb it. I'll figure out what I'm going to do with that later. But in reality, to spend, I spent $5,000 on one and $12,000 on the other. And the, the $5,000 one is like a one bedroom corner townhouse. And the $12,000 one is a three level townhouse overlooking like the, the cliffside. So it's got a really nice view, 
And I'm able to convert that and I've been converting it to a two family house. So I have like a uh, studio apartment on the ground level. And then upstairs I have uh, like a duplex that's another two bedrooms. So um, I figure for $12,000, if everything hits the fan and I were to lose everything in one shot, then hey, I got these properties in Italy. Or if I wanted to leave the US and I got tired of it and race wars, whatever that I want to participate in, and I, I want to get the hell out of there, I could go there. Um, and I was just looking at it from that perspective that it, it's more of a creative fun project than a true investment. But for people who have seen that article and who wondered if it's real or not, it's, it's totally legit. Um, and it's not just in Musumeli, you could go up to uh, Puglia, or, or Calabria, um, they have properties over there, which is like the, the boot in the heel of Italy. So it, a lot of these properties are concentrated in Southern Italy, um, which to me is the nicer side of Italy. It's just historically the mm, poorer side, just like any, any place where it's warm, people kind of work less and kind of take their time through life. So it's not like the Northern cities like Milan and Rome. Um, but I, I would definitely encourage people to check it out. I love that. I love that. I love that. Um, yo, to the listeners, I also encourage y'all to check out our t-shirts. Yes, sir. That's right. It is that time of the episode. Look, you know what you need to do. I have the gray one. Carl has a white one. We have the black one. A couple of episodes ago, I told y'all we weren't going to do the other colors and that still stands true. I'm sorry. We like you, but not enough to go and stress out our t-shirt suppliers. So what you need to do to get in, in the now is uh, text the word shirt to 321-384-6275, 321-384-6275. And if you want to get the study guide for this episode, it was fire. You wanted to take some notes. You didn't because that's what people do. We got you. All you got to do is text the word study guide to 321-384-6275. Again, that is study guide to 321-384-6275. Appreciate that, Paul. Carl, man, this was phenomenal. Like, seriously, this, I hope a lot of people eat off of this episode, but they're only going to eat if they actually take the knowledge and apply it. So I hope that they do. Um, but man, I, I can tell you, me and Paul, we, uh, we, the three of us will definitely be in touch. But uh, for for anyone, and, and let me say, man, thank you for coming on the show because we, we greatly appreciate it. We don't take it lightly that you decided to spend your time with us. And just for anyone that's listening and this is their first time being exposed to you, uh, what would be some contact info or social media information you would want to leave with them? Yeah, the best way, I guess I'll give you a few different things. Um, where I'm most active is going to be on my YouTube channel. ENTP life. So it's like my uh, Myers-Briggs personality type of ENTP space life. That's where I put put out all my content where I have the most engagement. Um, I answer every comment. Uh, as long as it's a new comment, I can filter for that on YouTube. So I answer every comment. So if you want to reach out to me, that's probably the best place. Secondary to that is Instagram at ENTP underscore life. Um, same thing. You could shoot me a message or a comment or however it works on Instagram. I don't really like using Instagram that much. I just kind of use it because people are there and I guess it's the thing for me to do. Um, but if the best way to reach me is that way. Also, you could email me if you're interested in the healthcare staffing course, email me at, this is a long one, but uh, email me at Carl at Solis, which is spelled S O. L-I-S-L-A-P-I-E-R-R-E.com. So that's Carl at solaslapierre.com. That's part of my real estate investment company. But that's an email that I monitor for social media and use for social media. Just shoot me an email, subject line, staffing agency. I could put you on the short list for when the course does release so that you can get alerted of how to do that. I am not giving any kind of tutorials and advice other than what's on my channel for starting a home healthcare agency, just because it's too much, right? It's just 
no way that I could coach you through that process in, in a short period of time. And I don't have the time to do that. So um, if you're interested in home health, you could shoot me an, an email and I could put you in contact with a consultant that that's all they do. It's the consultants that I've used and uh, they'll take care of you, but it's going to come at a cost. So be prepared for that. Perfect. Thanks so much, man. To our listeners, you know what time of the episode it is. It's time to wrap up. So do me and Paul a favor, hit, hit Carl up, tell him how much you enjoyed the information that he brought today. And then also go find OTC on uh, Apple Podcasts. Scroll all the way down to the bottom, hit the five-star review, click write a review, leave two or three sentences saying why this episode or any of the episodes you listen to are so amazing. Guys, I know we keep saying this is because you guys send us text messages, you send us messages on social media, please leave all of that in the reviews because it helps us from a ranking standpoint and it also helps with people being able to see the value that we're bringing with the amazing guests such as Carl um, and it helps us be able to continue to provide the value to not just you but others as well so with that being said until next time peace many blessings Thank you for listening to another episode of Off the Clock. Don't be shy to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. See you next episode.